but you also, you know, you, you sort of go into the, the socio-political uh, atmosphere that led up to this kind of behavior as a sort of explanation. And you, you cite um, Liam, Liam Bright, I believe, uh, uh, White mm-hmm. Psychodrama as an explanation for what might be going on here. Uh, with regard to, let's say, people who are not just cancel culture, but people, another phenomenon would be calling virtually anything and everything racist or sexist or et cetera, et cetera, you know. Uh, Do you want to comment on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I would just say that, uh, I mean, it's sort of in common with Liam Bright's thesis is just that, like, um, a great deal of what constitutes anti- uh, a racist rhetoric in the United States is actually just um, a sort of social struggle within white, uh, you know, the sort of uh, within white people world, right? Within uh, people who uh, are white and who exist in this sort of um, post-collegiate, uh, cultured, uh, urbanite, urbanite sort of space. Um, and that it becomes just a way in which white people vie against each other, even why obvious, well, obviously the actual, uh, uh, fight against, uh, racism is, uh, obviously, uh, quite, uh, vital. Um, and that, uh, uh, does a few things. I mean, one of the things it does is it functions as like a disciplining, uh, mechanism, um, for people sort of, uh, within that space to uh, not be as uh, aggressive or uh, or you there sorry hey there yeah That's sorry good. about that all right yeah, so the process through which people get into competitive colleges uh, I think is so unnatural for sort of basic human like progress in the world mm-hmm. um it is a, a period of adolescence in which you are profoundly um susceptible to various emotional uh, inputs and in which you are forming yourself um to sort of make that this grindhouse in which people have to sort of vie and and compete and uh and, and be filled with stress you know all the time the way that we do uh, in with elite college admissions just seems like a tool to create people who don't know how not to do that. And one of the things that I think happens is people graduate from college and they get to eventually to these places, these elite spaces Mm -hmm. in media or academia or in the nonprofit world. And the way in which they sort of socially jockey with each other is effectively um, an attempt to reestablish the rules of getting into college elsewhere in the world. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure if I follow the argument. You're saying that the highly competitive nature of college entrance is what leads to like uh, the kind of, I mean, for lack of a better term, sort of like woke dunking on other people or accusing people of. No, I think that, I mean, like not, not, not solely, but what I think, what I think is true is that um, uh, people uh, develop their personalities, right. Mm -hmm. uh, In their adolescence in the shadow of um, absolutely manic effort to succeed as Mm. dramatically as they possibly can in order to get into the most elite and exclusive colleges possible. And that creates a sense of order to the world. It creates a a, a sort of structure in which they can function um, that they then 
feel is missing after they graduate. And so um, many of the sort of cultural rituals of the sort of upwardly mobile, hyper-educated urbanite elite class um, are uh, happening, in my opinion, in part because they're trying to sort of uh, sort of recreate the conditions under which their adolescent happen, adolescence happened, right? Mm. If, you, if you go to like a Tony private school where everybody... Yeah, just that, like, look, like, um, at a very impressionable and important age, uh, we train adolescents to see other people in their cohort as natural competition, right? They're see, they, you know, they don't just think that they have to succeed. They think that they have to succeed better than, uh, uh, uh the people next to them, because that is sort of like the overarching logic of their uh you know formative teenage years and i think a lot of people miss that when they uh uh sort of graduate out of it after the end of college um and they look for various ways in which they can recreate that competitive urge uh Mm -hmm. in uh the uh sort of social and professional space and one of the ways that that happens is through uh um, way so psychodrama and exactly the way that Liam Coffey Bright means. So, it, okay. So in, in a sense, trying to, I don't know, uh, self-flagellate themselves and uh, uh, expunge themselves of their own sense of guilt or, or maybe like try to uh, counterbalance feelings of, of ex- exonerating themselves, essentially. Is that part of it? Um, well, look, I, I, it's not even self-flagellation, right? It's just flagellating their the person in their peer group. Look, you, 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 go, you are someone who does the necessary things to get into a Yale, a Stanford, a Brown, a University of Chicago, right? That puts you in an absolutely tiny sliver of humanity uh, that requires um, a level of uh, intense... Uh, 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 sort of achievement and constant stress and constant work and constant sort of um, never feeling satisfied that you've done enough to sort of burnish your college applications. You know, colleges, elite colleges were impossible to get into when I applied to college and that was in the 90s. Now it's, it's just gotten worse because they're not increasing their enrollments. So you go through that, you go to go to school, and you go to like a place like Yale, the, the Atlantic just put out an article by a Yale student in which she describes the fact that uh, her fellow students are um, going crazy signing up for competitive clubs, um, which uh, the college itself admits do not have to be as competitive as they are, but the students insist on making them hyper-competitive. Because that's what the students know and are used to and are conditioned for, right? Mm. By the process, by the sorting process. And so then um, you have, uh, you, they graduate out into the world and they say, okay, I want to go work in New York media or whatever. Um, it is very natural for them to look around at the people uh, around them, at their peer group, at the other people who work at their publications or at other publications or whatever, or on Twitter, it's natural for them to look around and say, okay, um, you know, the, this is my competition and I need to destroy them in some way. I need to outcompete them for the for sort of scarce resources. And I think that sort of social justice, constant social justice yelling functions as a tool through which they do that. Oh, uh, okay. I got you. That makes sense. 
Um, but then I guess my question, my follow-up is to uh, what percentage do you think, I mean, roughly speaking, how much of it do you think is that? And how much do you think are, uh, I guess, what you would call true believers who are going after other people because they you know, they're not, they're not trying to get a leg up in, in business, but they genuinely think that they're fighting the good fight and they're going after people who are actually, uh, whatever, you know, racists, uh, and they need to be taken down. They need to be called out. Um, I'm, I'm sure that it's, that's both, right? Like I, their, their motives are no doubt, um, their conscious motives are no doubt, um, you know, quite directly fixated on the actual substance of what they take to be social justice, right? But, you know, we're self-deceiving creatures. Everything that we do, we do in part for selfish ends. And so it's not that, uh, you know, they don't care, actually care or really care or whatever about social justice. They, I, it's, the point is just that uh, their, uh, uh, you know, their best interest, right, uh, often will appear to lie in uh, seeing somebody else from their own social and professional cohort, their competition, as someone who has failed the test of rising to the, to the level of social justice. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, no, we, we, we do all um, do that. Okay. Well, so then on that note, you were commenting on the sort of like uh, the, the way in which there's this lack of structure that, that, individuals are trying to rebuild to some degree do you think that uh, economic um not lack of structure but instability after the 2008 financial crisis could have potentially been part of what gave way to uh what we would call woke on one end and maga on the other and and sort of like i, th I think you kind of sort of you you touch on this uh, in some of the early chapters of your book but um do you see a, a direct correlation there I mean, look, there was a, there was a salutary um, uh, aspect to this, right? Which is that uh, the, um, like, if you look at, like, Occupy, like, a lot of the sort of original uh, uh, energy behind those things was more or less explicitly about, I mean, you can find old, um, uh, old, uh, Essays and stuff written by people who say that, like, you know, their 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 interests in Occupy and their anger at capitalism stem from the fact that, you know, they're not they don't feel that they're receiving the kind of uh, positions that they should uh, have earned. I mean, people were mad because they weren't getting these jobs at, you know. Simon and Schuster or Condé Nast or uh, working for, you know, the mayor's office in some sort of cool uh, capacity. Uh, uh, a lot of that was more or less explicit. Um, excuse me. Um, and that might sound like it's disqualifying, but that's just how politics works, right? Like, you know, the, the whole point of politics is to uh, appeal to people's self-interest in a way that uh, responds sort of the way that sort of activates their participation in a broader project, and then you activate enough people out of self interest, and pretty soon, like the common good is being uh, accomplished. Um, so that 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 wasn't really a problem, but certainly, um, the sort of uh, the lack of 
uh, you know, of economic opportunity for many people in the educated sort of elite uh, following the uh, financial crisis, uh, it no doubt produced um, sort of the discursive conditions under which we work today. Mm-hmm. And some of those discursive conditions are good and some of them aren't, aren't right? Like, I think, uh, I mean, for me, all the sort of explicit anti-capitalism um, is a very healthy development and was a natural reaction to um, the sort of collapse of uh, what was sort of seen as the old order. But the, you know, the downside is um, we have, I mean, I kind of described this in the book, you know, we just have this strange condition where we have a bunch of meritocrats, right? Like people who grew up um, in achievement cultures, in, you know, status cultures, trying to be the most, uh, to be the smartest and the most accomplished and to have the most activities, et cetera. People like that. Uh, who, uh, uh, you know, then go on to to sort of uh, public life where once they're sort of established in uh, their professions, they then begin to disdain meritocracy, right? Hmm. Um, I mean, it's it's one of the rituals now of being a sort of cool, educated uh, uh, person is to, uh, like... Is you say publicly, oh yeah, that meritocracy stuff is bunk. Uh, you know, all that work that I once did uh, to get where I am, you know, that was all that was all a joke all along. Um, and the problem with that is that, like, well, yes, like uh, you know, I wrote a whole my whole first book is a critique of meritocracy, um, among other things. Um, but like, you know, that doesn't mean that. Uh, the sort of process through which we get people to sort of try their hardest to achieve something better for themselves is inherently unjust. And so there's a lot of throwing out the paper with, with maybe with the bathwater. in it. Mm. This is what you talk on, uh, touch on in, in one of the later chapters, maybe chapter seven, where you talk about uh, liberals uh, pull, uh, yeah. achieving and then pulling the ladder out from, from under them and, uh, right. and, and I think the conclusion you settle on is essentially what you said with the baby and the, like, it's a little bit of both, right? I mean, the, we, we grew up, we come up in systems, like it's sort of absurd to think that, um, that Steve Jobs did it all by himself, just with, you know, hard work and determination. But on the other hand, uh, he was a unique figure who, who, you know, if he had not existed, it's not as if just the, the the system would have produced another one just like him. It's sort of a, a combination of, of the his individuality and his existence in a system that made that sort of made it possible for that individuality to to flower so to speak is that uh is that about uh right i mean look they they have their cake and eat it too right Mm. like they they disdain meritocracy from the pages of the new york times which maintain which you know remains deeply entangled in and committed to the concept of meritocracy right like um, the, the Times has not stopped uh, looking at people's achievements as a way uh, to decide whether or not to publish them, right? Mm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, any critique of meritocracy has to accept that we operate within uh, meritocracy at least for now. And uh, while you're in the business of undermining meritocracy, you have to remind people that 
now and for a long time to come, there's going to be, um, uh, uh, you know, a system in which you need to be perceived as being successful in order to make your life better. So operate in that system at the same time as you uh, understand the critique, right? Like, if you are a New York Times columnist who attacks meritocracy, it's fine to do so, right? But like, don't be, you know, don't be coy about the fact that you are yourself the product of an incredibly elite sort of meritocratic process, simply by by virtue of being at the New York Times. Mm. Do you see this as connected to this other phenomenon that you speak about in the book, uh, where you have um, often white men, though not only, uh, self-flagellating with expressions such as, you know, I know that as a white person, because they're trying to both acknowledge the importance of leaning back and not taking up all the oxygen in the room, but at the same time, they want to keep talking nonstop. And so they, they navigate it in that way. Do you think that the same thing is maybe happening with meritocracy where they're, 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 uh, aware of that they've come up through some of these benefits and through their own hard work, but they, they also feel this sort of like need publicly to say certain things about it it, as part of the discourse. Like these are the things you're supposed to say. Yeah. I mean, there there is, there is a certain range, uh, 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 range of, uh, sort of like, uh, acceptable opinion within the within this within this elite the educated you know hyper educated urbanite um left-leaning managerial elite um and uh like i mean look like there's a uh i say in the book right the problem is not like that uh self-flagellation uh the people who are sort of self-flagellate should like listen to their own critique and stay out of the conversation, right? Like the problem is the, all the theatrics of self-blame anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a well-established principle that public self-criticism, right, uh, has the uh, inevitable uh, perverse effect of actually functioning to make you look better which is the opposite of the ostensible reason why you were engaging in it, right? And to me, like, what you know, what what difference does it make, right? Who who cares if you if you as a white man, you know, make your sort of speech ahead of everything you do about why you know you have privilege, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, it's just it's just pointless theatrics that you don't need to engage in, right? Um, but uh, you know the the um, the the problem with all of this for many people is that these politics are so theoretical and so far away from their actual lives that all they have is discourse and and and, and symbol so and language so they say all the time you know I'm a bad white man because they don't have a sort of practical means to reveal the kind of person they are all that they have is their Twitter feed and that you know sort of pushes them to want to do this sort of thing. Hmm. When you say reveal the kind of person that they are, what do you mean by that? I mean, they want to demonstrate that they are one of the goodies, right? Uh, like the, the, um, I see what you mean, yeah. Again, like it, this, this fits perfectly with, with this, whole, this whole notion of a striving class that cannot stop striving, right? Hmm. When, when you're in high school, 
you strive by taking AP bio and being on the sailing team, right? When you get to, when you get to college, you strive by fighting to be an editor on the newspaper, which is an intensely competitive position, and you strive for an internship, and you strive to be a research assistant to some, you know, um, you know, muckety muck at the college or whatever. You emerge from that position, and now you're striving professionally to get to write for the biggest publication that you can. Um, but you're also striving morally, right? It's, it's a, your competitive morality is um, it's an extremely uh, 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 sort of you know crowded playing field, and the idea is to demonstrate in just the same way that you once tried to demonstrate that you were worthy of admission to Harvard. You are now trying to sort of demonstrate that you uh, deserve to be among the moral elect. And, mm. and this is, you know, Marx talks a lot about the uh, petit bourgeois and, you know, they have a certain structural relationship to the economy, but they are also marked by, you know, their sort of fretfulness about constantly pr proving that they deserve, they deserve their station. Right. And it's the same way here. Right. If you become a successful person in this sort of, you know, sort of managerial layer of elite liberalism, um, there's a, a profound desire to prove that it's uh, that it's morally deserved as well as deserved within the system of meritocracy. And that's why you get the theatrics. Mm, interesting. Is this does this um, this reminds me of one of the points you made uh, where you uh, cite Stephen Darcy who talked about how new activist vocabularies tend to overshadow <clears throat> uh, the individual. Uh, sorry, new activist vocabularies tend to tend to include uh, language about the individual that overshadows systemic issues and that this can sort of take away from, this can divert energy from um, making real progress. Uh, and you you also talk about the, you con you contrast like the old, uh, revolutionary focus on power and structure with this sort of contemporary, basically discussions of, of um, identity politics. And I, I believe you, you make the argument that you, you think that the older way was better. Um, can you comment on that and go into that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, look like um, many people uh, who uh, are sort of, um, left liberals uh, who exist in the sort of spaces that I'm talking about. So, you know, I, I often say academia and media and the nonprofit industry, but you can also include a lot of people who work in government and politics, people who are on the staffs of congressional, uh, in congressional staffs for, you know, congressmen or senators, the people who work in, um, you know, the Department of Education or the Department of Health and Human Services, et cetera, who have these sort of managerial uh, jobs, you know, they, they reflexively talk about structural uh, issues in politics. If you ask them uh, uh, any uh, particular <laughs> um, problem, you know, is this individual or is this structural, they'll tend to be, <laughs> um, to say, you know, straight out, well, it's a structural problem. And that's, you know, almost always true. It's not always true, but it's usually true in American political lives. Um, but they're so caught in a culture of individualism that I don't think that they have the analytical tools to understand what a structural response might be 
to a structural problem, mm. right? And so, you know, race is uh, uh, probably just the most obvious expression of this, where you have like a discourse of microaggressions. Uh, you have the work of um, Robin D'Angelo, and you know, Robin D'Angelo's perspective is that, um, uh, you know, uh, every time that a white person engages in conversation with a black person, there are subtle power dynamics and petty insults going on that the white person may not even be aware of, and, and that this is sort of is like <laughs> the expression of racism in the world. Macroaggressions is the idea that, you know, we're constantly doing little things that we may not think of as being uh, intentionally harmful and aren't like shouting the n-word at someone but which amount to a racialized uh, insult anyway you know those that that whole discourse is just totally uh contrary to any conception of a structural politics right right um if you if 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 it were true that white people adjusting their personal behavior and in particular, their communicative, their communicative behaviors. Um, and the problem would be a lot smaller than it is, right? But uh, every white person could walk around with a completely pure heart and never commit uh, a single microaggression and treat uh, black people in an interpersonal sense, uh, uh, you know, as well as we might hope for. Uh, and they might still find uh, and you would still find that even after we waved the magic wand and made that happen, the black-white uh, income gap would be large. Mm. The black-white wealth gap would be immense. The gap in uh, uh, the black-white gap in uh, lifespan, the black-white ga- gap in incarceration rates, etc. Right? None of those things requires uh, any individual white person to have any individual. Uh, sort of a sort of sense of hatred um and so but but people live with this contradiction constantly and with no with no sense that it's a contradiction at all right i mean people just they believe that they have a structural approach to politics but they're so marinated in american individualism they don't understand that there's nothing structural about what they're saying is this uh is it your contention that this is maybe just a kind of frustration at the inability to address the greater issues and so they're kind of just grasping at whatever they can address or or is yeah, it I mean, yeah it's it's, that, it's it's the impotence right it's the inability to, to create change but it's also a natural function of where the left actually uh controls uh uh controls power and has influence Right, you know, where does the, the uh, does the left actually have uh, the most sway uh, mm-hmm. in our various industries? Right, I see the what you mean. Has control in those places that are the most linguistic, the most symbolic, the most artistic. Right, uh, the left controls the entertainment industry. Uh, I mean, well, left culture dominates in the entertainment industry. Right. I mean, we, we could talk, we could have a conversation about like actually to control the power economically, but left culture dominates in, you know, entertainment and media, right? Ideas, language, mm. uh, uh, art, movies, film, music, right? 
uh, to left uh, culture dominates in academia, right, where there's the transmission of ideas, the creation of research, the generation of, of intellectual culture. Uh, nonprofits. Nonprofits do a lot of stuff in the world in terms of like sometimes they build bridges or get clean water for people, but the the dominant uh, sort of pr a product that the nonprofit industrial complex makes is ideas, is position papers, it's hmm. uh, you know it's right. uh, uh, pamphlets for people, right? Like just the the amount of time and energy that is spent within the nonprofit world on like the immaterial is dwarfs that of what's material. Mm. So again, if these are your places, if, if, if where you have ruled traditionally has been in this places that are linguistic or are symbolic or artistic, then it's natural to say, well, okay, I'm going to fixate on these spaces because they are, you know, within my traditional sphere of power. The problem is you can't actually make change happen that way. Interesting. That's interesting. So that's they're just operating where they can operate or where they can at least uh, affect change immediately, essentially. Yeah. Mm. Um, so uh, at the same time that there's this sort of focus on what some might call, I don't know, frivolous uh, changes that aren't really addressing the larger issue, there also seems to be, as you point out, a, a move by the left away from its traditional philosophical focus on elevating the downtrodden, that seems to be going away as the left becomes more elitist, something that you talk about in great detail in some of the later chapters. Uh, how has this shift impacted unity among various voter groups on the left? And what has this done to the left's ability to address that kind of change? Or is it no longer that interested in addressing that particular kind of change? I mean, I think that, you know, there are very few people who uh, will sort of expressly cop uh, to, uh, you know, no longer being interested in that kind of change. The problem is, um, again, <laughs> as we said, like, it's just it's difficult to make to make change in the material world. It's especially difficult um, when, you know, Conservatives, you know, their 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 base of power remains in you know business and industry and the military, right? Um, the uh, police forces, etc. They have you know a uh, a more sort of directly material base of power than the, than the left does. But yeah, I just think that um, we shouldn't like imagine some past world where the left was guided entirely by you know, hard guys in hard hats, right, on, on the union floor, on the, on the shop floor, right? Like, that's, that, that would be uh, an exaggeration. But it is a case that um, once upon a time, a great deal of sort of left practice was generated within uh, these sort of unionized uh, <laughs> um, uh, uh, sort of apparatus where you had like a captive population of people mm. who were available to uh, hear, uh, you know, uh, some left doctrine and left ideas uh, based on uh, their sort of, again, their economic best interest, right, which is always what drives politics. 
Uh, and so they were able to do that sort of like to engage in their union activity uh, and become more conscious and sort of uh, help to direct the sort of policy. And as people who are sort of had more economic precarity, they are more likely to sort of orient the part its party towards uh, dollars and cents issues. Um, but also, yeah, I mean, again, it's just you have a uh, sort of party uh, elite who uh, uh, is well-meaning, but who most of whom just have profoundly little engagement or, or, or experience with uh, actual economic deprivation. And you have, uh, uh, you know, these people play a great role in shaping policy. One of the most important ways is that's congressional staffers, but also as what they call the groups. I mean, I, I devoted an entire chapter to the nonprofit industrial complex because it's just really important to understand how those groups sort of move the party. And those groups are made up of a bunch of college grads who just don't really think that often about, okay, what's it really like for, for working people? And so I think everybody has good intentions, but it's just hard to keep the material on the, the tip of your tongue when you are uh, within the apparatus of liberalism, which rewards engagement on culture war issues more than it rewards economic engagement. Mm. That's an excellent point. Actually, speaking of like on that note, uh, good intentions and culture war issues that sometimes don't always succeed. You also uh, briefly noted police. So, um, do you think Black Lives Matter was a failure? Uh, and specifically with regard to the defund the police, the, the call to defund the police? Well, so, I mean, look, um, I would I, I, we don't necessarily have to talk about Black Lives Matter uh, in the past tense, right? Um, okay. It's important to say that the civil rights movement, you know, failed a lot before it succeeded. Hmm. Um, that's a good point. Uh, so, you know, Black Lives Matter could continue to have uh, great influence. Now, you know, I'm not the person that, to sort of judge this, uh, but I do know people who are sort of among the sort of black activist class who tell me that increasingly um, young black activists are sort of soured on the Black Lives Matter sort of brand. I would think that the well is poisoned a little bit because... Uh, uh, you know, uh, frankly, a lot of money got disappeared. A lot of money got stolen, which is not great. Um, but, uh, look, the constant claim in 2020 and 2021 was that, uh, nothing short of revolutionary change would be accepted and no revolutionary change occurred. And so in the in most simple and direct sense, like, yes, Black Lives Matter failed because it set for itself a certain like sort of level of um, uh, of, of demand and failed to meet it. Right. So right. yes, that, that sort of was a failure. Uh, look, I, it's all in the book. You know, the 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 deciding that the demand was going to be the defund the police demand. Um, uh, with an immense mistake, because it 
it created an expectation that only the only victory that was possible was a victory that was not achievable. Hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just, we were not going to abolish the police, uh, almost anywhere. Right. That, that was not going to occur. No. Uh, and, uh, and so setting that goal was essentially just, um, you know, handing establishment power a victory because it allowed them to sort of say, Oh, well, look, your, your, your demands are so crazy. Uh, how can, you know, how can we possibly meet them? It reminds me a lot, uh, in Oberlin college in the early 2010s, maybe the mid 2010s, um, these activists came up with a list of demands, very extravagant demands, uh, they wanted from the university demands the university wasn't in a position to be able to meet. And, uh, they, uh, uh, gave those demands and they said, uh, these demands are, uh, non-negotiable. Oh, hang on one second. They said these demands are non-negotiable. Uh, uh, and we won't waver from any of them. And that ultimately did Oberlin's president a big favor. Because he could just say, well, they said that they won't negotiate about anything and I can't accept these demands. And so what happened was nothing, right? And it was sort of the same way with Black Lives Matter. Like once, once they fund the police became the core demand and that demand was so far from what was possibly achievable in uh, American life in 2020, uh, then uh, you're, you're, you're essentially like letting people off the hook. If they had had more limited demands, if the demand had been end qualified immunity, which is one of the most important things you could possibly do for protecting black people from police violence, um, that might have been something that the political parties would have to actually engage with. But that wasn't sexy enough. It wasn't extreme enough. So unfortunately, that wasn't the demand. Can you can you briefly uh, just expand on qualified immunity for those who may not be familiar with the issue? Yeah, so if you want to, if you get abused by a a police officer and you want to uh, um, uh, uh, get relief, you you want, uh, uh, you know, to be able to receive justice, there's essentially three ways that that can happen. The first is that if the police have violated the law, they can be arrested and tried by the local uh, police by the local police department and local prosecutors or by the local state. Uh, this is obviously not a very easy way to go about getting justice because um, police and prosecutors don't like uh, prosecuting cops uh, and they you know function as a, as a, as a cartel that protect, protects each other. The second way you can do it is that you can hope that it gets bad enough that the fed that the feds um, uh, in the Justice Department, the Federal Department of Justice, um, uh, invokes uh, their right to review uh, local police police departments to potentially file federal charges. The federal government hates to do that. They, uh, you know, they uh, they don't. They, they think that they'll pay a political price to setting party if uh, they do that too often. And you know, the people who run the Justice Department are like law and order types who favor the cops. So that doesn't tend to happen. Mm. The third way is to sue. And here's the problem. There is a doctrine, a legal doctrine called qualified immunity, which offers tremendous 
protection to police officers if, in fact, they violate your rights. Uh, the uh, qualified immunity makes it extremely difficult to effectively sue a police officer or police officers for having abused you. Um, now you can say, well, look, like, no matter what the status of qualified immunity was for George Floyd, uh, it wouldn't have mattered because they killed him. So he couldn't have gotten justice after the fact. But the reality is, is um, just statistically, numerically, objectively, the number of people killed by police in the country of any race is quite small um, and is not as important as the much broader and deeper problem of casual police violence and abuse and coercion, etc. And there, qualified immunity is a real problem. So if we could get rid of qualified immunity, uh, it wouldn't make everything uh, better all at once, uh, but it would give us a really essential tool to making cops afraid again, right? To make cops feel like if I violate this person's rights, there's a uh, a real chance that I'm gonna it's gonna ruin my life because of a lawsuit. Um, but uh, 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 again, you know, that just did not become the demand. I'm sorry to say. Mm-hmm. And so where do you see, uh, where do you see, not necessarily the movement itself, but more broadly speaking, the direction of our geopolitical landscape? The, I mean, as far as I can tell, it seems as if things are going to maybe get a little bit worse before they get better. But I'd be interested to hear what you think about the, the, the near future of the left, maybe the next I don't know, five, five years or something. Uh, and, and also I'd love to hear what, what do you think, not just where do you think we're going, but, um, where do we need to go? Where do you, where do you want us to go irrespective of whether or not you think we might actually do that? I mean, look, it would only take one, you know, one more high profile videotapes, uh, act of police murder to reinflame a lot of this stuff and put people back in the streets. Um, there was a, case like that, I believe in Memphis, um, but uh, it did not actually end up kicking up as uh, much uh, fuss <laughs> excuse me, um, as you might have assumed because uh, the police officers who uh, uh, committed the crime uh, were black themselves, which seemed to have played a large, a large role um, uh, in uh, in it not sort of becoming a big deal, but that could kick up again. That being said, I do think that there is a certain exhaustion with all of this stuff and understanding that uh, uh, the uh, uh, like, you know, this whole sort of approach to politics seems exhausted and to not have worked. The book is not about, you know, wokeness, quote unquote. Um, uh, I have, you know, it was one of the very first things I uh, I said over and over again uh, when I first uh, sold the book to Simon and Schuster. But there is obviously some overlap with those issues. And I just think that, um, you know, people are more and more, as, as bad as this stuff is, and as much as it will go on, you know, the constant sort of canceling and the constant sort of attack on, uh, 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 you know, searching for the, 
uh, like, you know, where's the heretic among us? Um, it's exhausting. It is, it leaves everyone in a constant state of, of fear and threat and people just don't want to live that way anymore. Um, and so I, I'm hoping that, you know, it, it appears to some degree that some of the bloodletting has sort of seeped out. Um, but, uh, you know, the other big thing is, um, the Democrats have been doing an unusually good job, uh, like on the sliding scale of American partisan politics, right? Like, um, it's, you know, it's still vastly worse than it should be. And every president is a war criminal and Biden is probably, you know, may very well be too old to win uh, another presidential election. But I am ready to declare Joe Biden the best president of my lifetime at this point. Um, if nothing else, for the sort of pro-labor uh, sort of uh, appeal that he's been making. Um, uh, and uh, look, it remains the case that only about one in ten American workers are in a union. And for all of this, all this talk of a hot union, a hot labor summer, and all the strikes and everything things really to get better we need to increase the rate of people who are in unions yeah but it's, it's probably the most um optimistic period for labor um maybe in my lifetime um and so you know if the, if the sort of the energy went in that direction that would be fantastic the, i mean i think the big caveat is you know um if trump wins the presidency again uh and liberals will lose their minds again and they'll go right back to obsessing over, um, you know, microaggressions and stuff like that. But we have to wait and see. So for you, uh, a better a better organizing principle than than a lot of the frivolous sort of wokeness or what have you, whatever you want to call it, would it be uh, organizing around uh, class or around labor, or is is that the one of the primary uh, focuses for you? I mean, look, it has to be, I, I don't, you know, the, the left is labor, right? Like there's no, like, there's no, there's no future for the left as the left without labor. Um, mm. uh, labor organizing of one kind or another, where people in the same, uh, who work for the same companies or in the same industries come together, uh, and pool their labor power together and threaten to withdraw it if they don't. They don't get what they want. Um, it's the only reliable means through which we're going to chip away at American inequality and bring up the floor for everyone, right? Like, look at UPS and the Teamsters. Uh, the Teamsters were, were ready to strike right before a strike. The uh, um, uh, uh, the UPS reached out to them, gave them a ton of what they wanted. They got a much better deal than they had originally uh, been offered by UPS, right? And UPS didn't do that out of the kindness of their hearts. The Teamsters were saying, we will stop working and it will cost you hundreds of millions of dollars if we do. And UPS did the math, right? That's the only way anything ever gets better in this country economically. But so that, that has to be the approach. Hmm. That's very well said. Uh, any final thoughts? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I um, look like the, the more pessimistic <laughs> version of all this. Um, <laughs> okay. 
is that Trump dies or is it or goes to jail or otherwise just sort of goes away. Right. He seems to be the locus of uh, conservative politics. And somebody, uh, some conservative takes his place who is actually like a disciplined, uh, non-crazy, but also like a real fiscal conservative uh, Republican, a Paul Ryan type, uh, a Ronald Reagan type. Um, you know, part of why Trump won was his willingness to protect Democrat, to protect Social Security, Medicare. Um, he also was like vague enough when it came to things like gay rights that he didn't um, offend some people who you know might eat, you know this be you know, the mythical pro gay uh, Republican. Um, but you know, the Democrats have been barely holding on to power with this guy who appears to have a serious brain injury in Trump and who has immense negative uh, things associated with him for the Republican Party. If someone who is actually like charismatic and uh, intelligent and knows how to do politics and also sort of has, you know, austere fiscal uh, conservative values. If, if someone like that emerges from the Republican Party, then we're in real trouble. Mm. 